Let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today, as we always do. We ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts. We know that everyone has heard various parts, if not all, of the Sermon on the Mount. But help us to dig a little deeper to see what the real meaning is for each of us in a practical sense. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today, and we give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most familiar titles in all of the Bible. Uh, most people have heard it. They may not be able to describe what its meaning is, or what is in, its intent is, and I just have to throw this little funny out because many priests or deacons who get up to give a sermon on the financial abilities or uh, outcome of the parish, they will generally start by saying, this is the sermon on the amount. And uh, that, of course, always gets a little chuckle. But uh, to be serious about it, the Sermon on the Mount is really a very beautiful section of the Gospel of Matthew. And as you can well imagine, it uh, has a number of teachings in the order. And I gave you this handout last week, and I hope that all of you have brought it again today because we're going to be following that. And as I've said last week, we can, I think, better understand that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew um, brought a number of teachings together so that they make a little sense and have some relationship to each other. You have to kind of keep in mind that Jesus went from town to town uh, over a three-year period and often repeated many of the same things. Now, most of what he preached was not new to the people because the law was very familiar with all of the Jewish people who took their faith seriously. But what Jesus is now beginning to say is there's more to it than just following rules and regulations. And that is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, is to get us to think and look a little deeper into the teachings there um, so that we understand and we develop a relationship with Christ or with God through Christ uh, that goes a little deeper than just observing the laws. I've heard so many people say, well, I used to be a Catholic, but I didn't like all those rules and regulations. Or uh, I don't want to be a Catholic because I don't like all those rules and regulations. Well, if you look at the way the church is structured, you'll see that there aren't many rules and regulations I consider, or I prefer to call them guidelines, 
because if you follow just rules and regulations for the sake of following and not breaking the rules and regulations, you're doing something that is kind of self-serving. You should not look at sin as breaking rules and regulations. Sin is an offense against God in one form or another, regardless of how serious or insignificant it might be. A sin is really an offense against Jesus Christ himself. And that's why we want to, should be, uh, careful and avoid the whole idea of rules and regulations. The unfortunate part about uh, this as in the time of Christ was that most people could not read or write. And that is not, you know, any derogatory statement against the majority of the people. That was a cultural thing because books were not available as they are today. Uh, and teachers were not available as well as they are today. So we can't put down the Jewish people of the time of Christ. But what Christ himself did was criticize the rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees for not teaching the people more than just what the rules were and getting them to observe rules rather than to honoring God by being faithful to his teachings that came to them through Moses. And so that's what we want to do today is to spend a little time in looking at something that is just underneath the surface and get, in, get into the idea of not offending Christ or God through Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but rather looking at the guidelines that he has set up for us to deepen our relationship. Uh, one of the phrases that you will often read here in this Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I don't think Matthew uses the word God because that was one of those sacred words that were not used unless it was something having to do with temple worship. Um, so Matthew uses mostly the kingdom of heaven. Nevertheless, if you really stop to think about it, if heaven is not a, a physical place, then what is it? Have any of you really thought of it that way? If it's not a physical place, what is heaven? And why should we be so anxious to get there? Heaven is really a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Simple as that. And it can be a very deep and all-encompassing thing, or it can be a light skim the surface kind of thing. But I liken it in a way to heaven being a very large uh, church or cathedral, something like St. Peter's in 
Rome. If you've been to St. Peter's in Rome and you're standing at the main entrance, the sort of back door, and you're looking towards the altar, and a friend of yours or a person whom you know is standing up there by the altar, you will not be able to recognize him. It is so far. It's, I think they've measured it to be something like uh, two-fifths of a mile from the door to the altar. So if you think of heaven being something like that, would you like to be right up front where all of the action is? Or would you just want to skim inside the back door where nothing is really visible? So your relationship with Christ can be measured in the same way as how close to the altar, how close to Christ do you really want to be? I tell you, when I go there, I've got a whole list of questions I'm going to ask. It's going to take a long time. <laughs> Why did you do this this way? Why did you do it that way? Why couldn't you have done this way? Etc. Etc. But I got a lot of questions to ask. So I want to be right up at the front door, the front gate, or the altar, or wherever where Christ is. All right. But let us get serious. The Sermon on the Mount starts out with the Beatitudes. Well, that's fine. And I can understand why the writer of Matthew put it that way. Because it gets people's attention. But I'd like in teaching it to sort of do it at the back end. Because you have to understand what being a disciple is all about. Now, we talked about disciple last week, discipleship last week, uh, and we'll be talking about it almost every in every meeting because that is one of the main thrusts of uh, Matthew's Gospel. The idea of discipleship. Now, unfortunately, Matthew uses the word disciple and apostle uh, sort of interchangeably. In fact, he doesn't use the word apostle very often. Uh, And so we've got to be a little careful when we are thinking about it. But let's let's do it this way. (laughs) Those people who wish to be close to Jesus close to God through Jesus, and have a deep relationship with him, is considered a disciple. The apostles were 12 fellows that were picked for special duties, you might say. And let's leave it at that, because uh, when we talk about discipleship, we are talking about something that all of us can be a part of. All of us cannot be apostles. That has to come through the church, and we have to be appointed as such. And I don't expect ever to be uh, appointed a bishop, uh, especially at my age. Huh? <laughs> uh, well, that's right. Uh, so w- discipleship is something that we can all partake of and should want to partake of it. All right. 
Now, don't feel that you're too old or you've got uh, other responsibilities or other interests. God can take you where you are and make you into what he wants you to be. And that is a very important part of discipleship, is to want to be what Christ wants us to be. Now, each of us has some ability, something to offer, regardless of what our age is, what our circumstances are, you know, whether we're married or uh, widowed or we have never married. makes no difference. God can take us and use us as we are. We have to be willing to give what we have <coughs> excuse me, to him uh, to accomplish that end. It has to be an agreement. Christ will not force us into anything. We have to be able and willing to give of ourselves and let the chips then fall where they may. Uh, I remember many, many years ago when Christ was saying, I want more of you to me. (coughs) I had a family with small children at the time. And I went through the, you know, well, what was me? Why this and why that? And I've got this responsibility. He just sort of blew over that and said, I want you to do such and such. (coughs) Excuse me. So here it is. I've been teaching for almost 40 years. Never thought that would ever happen. Um, But I found that it has brought me a great amount of pleasure. And uh, let's say it covered uh, a lot of wrongdoings and our mistakes in the past. All right. Let us get into uh, going through the details here. Now, I'm not going to get into... Uh, real depth of reading every word and that kind of thing. Much of this, I'm sure that you as educated and intelligent people can figure out pretty much for yourself, but there are certain points (coughs) that I I just need to bring out. But you've got to remember that this was written back 2,000 years ago for a people who thought much differently than we do today. And there are words and there are thoughts and phrases in there that may not apply to us today. And that is, of course, the way we have to look at it. How does this mean and what does this mean to us today? (coughs) Excuse me. But I think that if you are careful to keep when this was written and sort of translate it to something 2,000 years later, we will get to the real point. I'm going to leave the Beatitudes until towards the end of this meeting because, as I said before, once you have gotten through what Matthew feels a true disciple should be. 
and what discipleship should be, then the Beatitudes, which are really a reward of being a successful um, and a faithful disciple is, the rewards become then much more important and clearer. So, I think in a way we've already covered this idea of the role of the disciple or disciples uh, or discipleship. The role of Jesus in everyday life should be something that we should begin the first thoughts in the morning and end with our last thoughts in the evening. Now, somebody might say, well, that's a little much, you know, especially when i got all this and that to do. But if you get into the habit of really wanting Christ in your life, then he makes it easier for you. It is something that will start to come naturally. Um, that's the first thing I do when I get out of bed in the morning, as tired as I might be or refreshed as I might be, whatever. Uh, the first thing I do is I thank God for a good night's sleep and another day to serve him. That's as simple as it. You don't have to get down and do a long dissertation of prayers. We'll get to prayer in a little bit. But the whole idea is recognition of who God is for you. Any problem with that? Any question about that? Is there any uh, question as far as how deep you have to go? You don't really have to go any further than what's in front of you. God will take care of that. Julie? I, say, I like to just say, good morning, God. Thank you for my night. Good enough. Yeah. You know, keep it simple. Keep it simple. You don't have to, you know... Pray the rosary the moment you get out of bread or something of that kind. Uh, later on, perhaps, if you have the time and it fits within your schedule, take it a little further. But at least acknowledge that God is the essence of your life, morning, noon, and night. The sermon starts out with, you are the salt of the earth. And I love that statement. Because I like salt, for one thing. <laughs> but that's not exactly what it means. What are the properties of salt? One of the main properties of salt is to bring out the best of the flavors in the food in which you put it in. It's also a preservative. It can also be a medication. It can be a number of things. But overdone, it can also be dangerous like any other good thing. But what we are asked to do here and what this is all about is that when we are in company of others, we've got to reflect the Catholic, the Christian way of life. We cannot accept, let's say, dirty jokes. We cannot accept uh, gossip or criticism of others. And where possible, 
you have to kind of let people know that, that is just not an acceptable uh, point of discussion. Now, gossip, I'll tell you, especially when you live as I do among a hundred other people. <laughs> it's one of the main topics of conversation. But you cannot join in and, where possible, say something like that. Well, let's, let's not uh, go that far. Let's move on. In other words, let people know that it is not something that you approve of. Okay. But also, help out. Be the salt of the earth. Be where you can help other people. Encourage them. Smile at them. That is one of the best ways of getting uh, acquainted. And it's one of the best ways of bringing somebody up out of a, a gloomy spot or helping them to enjoy life in general. Smile. Say hello. <laughs> yes, just yesterday I was coming down in the elevator with a lady that I had never seen before. I've lived in, in this place for two years, and I've never seen this woman. So I assumed, my mistake, but I assumed that she had just moved in and was a new resident. So I said, well, are you getting settled? She said, well, I should be. I've been here for two years. <laughs> Well, I thought, whoops, uh, my faux pas, but, you know, at least it was done in, a, in an innocent way. Uh, stupid as I am, but nevertheless. <clears throat> but at least it started a conversation. Yeah. So, uh, sometimes, you know, your, your good intentions backfire. But uh, at least people will recognize, hopefully. Uh, the other night, I was passing somebody in the hall who lived in an apartment just a few feet away, but he was sitting there looking like he was had the weight of the world on his shoulders and was very troubled. And I thought perhaps he was sleeping. So I said to him, I called him by name, and I said, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And he looked at me like, what business is it of yours? <laughs> so your best intentions are not always going to be welcomed. Uh, but you can do the best you can. But it is a way at least of making yourself known in a, in a good way. Enough of that. Now, if any of you have questions or comments, feel free to let me know and we'll go on. Okay. The teachings about murder and anger. It's interesting in, in some ways to me um, that one of the main commandments is thou shalt not kill. And in Jewish law, they had that as a, a very major part of their belief system. Furthermore, as being 
under the domination of the Roman Empire, the Jewish people had no right to kill or put anyone to death for any reason. And yet, time after time, we know that they did. For example, John the Baptist, St. Stephen. They tried to kill St. Paul several times. And of course, most of all, they crucified Christ. Of course, they got the Romans to do the crucifying of Christ, but it was the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin that actually uh, manipulated that move. So murder is wrong, but murder to us today is even more so, and yet so much of it goes on. Uh, the most important thing that we have to be concerned with is about abortion, which is, according to the church and the teachings of God through the church, is wrong because it is murder. I won't go any further than that because I'm sure you've all heard a great deal of that. But there is no exception. Murder is wrong under any circumstances because we are not the originators of life and therefore we cannot take life. That is God's privilege alone. Now, self-protection is an exception. <clears throat> But that is rarely the, the case. So let's not go beyond that. All right. Adultery and lust. Well, we are all um, faced with circumstances and situations that might be classified as uh, leading up to adultery or lust. But remember that sin begins in the mind and the heart and is often more so than in the action. So what Jesus is saying in, or what Matthew is saying here in the gospel that we have to be very careful of our thoughts because we can be led from sinful thoughts into sinful actions. We all are almost sick to death of hearing about harassment stories, and regardless of how you feel, uh, there is wrong here, and the way I put it is, <clears throat> we should all be careful to keep our pants on and our hands off. Okay? It easily said, but not so easily done when we are enticed. Women have to be very careful that they are not uh, adding to the problem by provocative dress or actions. Divorce. Divorce is, is wrong under any circumstances except for if there is an illegal marriage in the first place. So many people are concerned and have uh, voiced their displeasure with the Catholic Church because we do not accept or recognize divorce. 
And that is not exactly true. The reason that the church is concerned about divorce is that if a man and a woman make a commitment before God, the church cannot nullify that commitment. It's as simple as that. Because when two people come together in a Catholic marriage, they make a commitment at the altar before God. And that commitment is binding to life and death, through life and death. Oaths. Now, when you read oaths and when you read the Gospels, and to some degree, uh, the letters of Paul. It talks about swearing. We have a different meaning today of the word swearing. We think it's doing vulgar, you know, saying or speaking in, with vulgar language. That is not what the Gospels and the, <clears throat> the letters of Paul are referring to. They are referring to taking oaths. Remember, people could not write. There wasn't a thing as a written contract for most things. There were for a few, but very little. And therefore, an oath was taken in all seriousness to make an agreement binding. This is not, has nothing to do, or let's put it this way, this covers virtually any agreement where two people come together and say that one side will do something and the other side will uh, receive it and they in turn will do something. That agreement was often signified by a certain words or word and a handshake or whatever. And that is what this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with. The oaths, a valid oath or an invalid oath. It's really not much different than written contracts today. But that's what it's all about. And Christ is saying that you've got to go deeper than just <clears throat> what you're writing on paper. That if you mean yes, you've got to follow through. If you mean no, You've got to follow through with that too and be clear about it. Retaliation. Retaliation can take many different forms and faces. And this is where we hear this. If somebody slaps you on, uh, the face, you have to turn your cheek to another, the other side, so that they can slap you on the other side. That is not really what it means, all right? <clears throat> Roughly, that <clears throat> is saying, in a way, that we cannot go to extremes. In Jewish writing, exaggeration was used a lot to signify an important item and to uh, make its importance understood. The same way as when you hear this 
eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That actually was part of Jewish law, but it was not intended to actually talk about taking somebody's eye out. What it was saying is that we cannot exceed the retaliation um, to be greater than the original problem or uh, effect or, or crime or whatever it might have been. Uh, got a little distracted there, but that's a, a common problem. Uh, <coughs> retaliation is something that we should not be concerned with. We should do the best we can uh, to settle the thing without uh, getting into physical contact. Yes, Joe? I think uh, vengeance probably what comes under retaliation. Yeah. 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 Yes, yes. Uh huh. What bothers me right now in these uh, harassment problems that are so prevalent in uh, the media today is are the accusers coming forward out of retaliation, out of revenge? That is wrong in itself, particularly somebody who's coming forward 30 or 40 years later. Uh, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, but we have to understand when we go forward to make an accusation towards someone for whatever the problem might be, we have to examine why we are doing it. If it is pure retaliation or revengeance, or vengeance, I should say, or revenge, uh, then that is wrong in itself. So we got to be careful. There are always two sides to a story. Right. Love of enemies. Well, love of enemies is often uh, something that a person will dismiss because they can't say, well, I can't ever forgive so-and-so. We God understands our human weaknesses. But then there are times when we can control those as well. I recall that several years ago when we were, when the United States was winning the war against Iraq and we had conquered uh, some of the major cities and had overtaken the prisoners and we installed our own guards, etc., uh, in the prisoner in the prisons, and use them to house some of the um, people that we felt were main problems to our cause. There was one scene where one American female officer uh, or female uh, service person was actually pulling the enemy who was naked by a leash as if that person was a dog. Now, that might have been a display of how we felt or they felt against the enemy. 
but that was something that was beyond reasoning. We have to treat our enemies at least with a certain amount of dignity to the effect that they are a human being and a child of God, just as we are. All right. Almsgiving. The three pillars of repentance is prayer, penance, and almsgiving. And what the point is here is that we should not make a display of our generosity or lack of generosity uh, towards the poor or those in need. They may not be poor, but they may be in need of something else. Maybe understanding, sympathy, uh, just <clears throat> the fact that they do have a friend, they do have some way to turn or whatever. Uh, the whole idea of giving of yourself is extremely important. And as we come uh, or start Lent next week, week from today, that's something that we should think about. Not, you know, as young kids uh, in school, I remember we were all taught we had to give up something. And, of course, the easiest thing to give up was candy. All right, or the movies, or whatever. I feel that as adults, we should go beyond that. It is not so much what we should give up, but what can we do to help others less fortunate than we are? Turn your penance around to something that is positive rather than negative, something that helps others rather than just something where you're penalizing yourself. It is more important, really, to share and understand that God is asking us not so much to harm ourselves physically or spiritually, but to do something for the betterment of mankind. So I would hope that all of you would give some thought to what can you do in a positive way that you haven't been doing for the betterment of others, at least through um, uh, through Easter, and then hopefully, hopefully carry it further. Because it should be something that you can build on or should want to build on, not just start, but in your whole idea of wanting to deepen your relationship with Christ or God through Christ. Find something where you are weak. Find something where you are lacking in your relationship with Christ. And work on that one or two things. Don't overload yourself like people do, you know, in January with New Year's resolutions. Uh, you know, they far probably never get beyond January the 15th uh, with any of them. My New Year's resolution is always to make no New Year's resolutions. <laughs> but use this time period 
from Ash Wednesday, which is a week from today, through Easter, which is four weeks plus a little, uh, six weeks, I'm sorry, uh, to improve your relationship with Christ. And start with one or two things where you feel that you are lacking. And God will accept that. More so than giving up television or giving up uh, the iPad or the iPhone or whatever it is you have or something of that kind. <clears throat> Make it positive. Prayer. Personal prayer. Personal prayer was something that the Jewish people were not encouraged to do. It wasn't that they were forbidden. It was just not part of their regime um, or, or their belief system. Uh, everything was done in a communal way. And most of the prayers, such as the Psalms, that are a very important part of our liturgies and uh, much of our devotions, were always written in such a way that they were to be recited in the temple. They were not written as personal prayer. But Christ said, close your door and do so to pray in private so that your Lord and God knows what your intentions are and that you can spend this short amount of time with God in prayer. Now, communal prayer, of course, is very important. And we do that uh, not only in uh, our Mass on Sunday and weekdays, for those of you who go on a weekday, uh, and at other times. Those things are very important. You cannot put a measuring stick to the value of prayer. It all depends a great deal on your intentions. For those of you who may say the rosary every day, that can get uh, to be a little repetitious and a little monotonous. Do something to make it not so. Uh, stand up. Break it up into a couple of different time periods. And there's other things that you can do to make it a little more obvious of what you're doing and why are you doing it. Now, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is extremely important, partly because it was originated by Jesus himself. And it is sort of, if you think about it, there are three main, uh, there are two main parts to it. That is the first three parts. And then the remainder of it uh, can be classified into or divided into seven parts, which is what? Ten parts are a balance to the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments are all about God and your relationship with God. The remaining seven of the Ten Commandments is your relationship with other people. Most of the Lord's Prayer works the same way. Now, one of the 
I always call it the most dangerous prayer also. And why is it the most dangerous prayer? Well, when you get to the part of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, if you stick the word only in there, look what it does. Forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins only as we forgive others. You ever thought of it that way? I've had people come to me and say, I can never give, forgive so-and-so for what they did. And I'll look right at it and say, well, then that means Jesus can't forgive you for some of those things either. Why, why, why? I said, well, have you ever read or said the Our Father? Well, of course I have. I said, well, say it now real slow. And so when they get to that part, forgive us our sins, I say, stop. Think of what you're saying. And I've had people come back to me and say, that has changed my attitude a lot. Yeah. So, I would like every one of you to think of it that way as well. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Enough said. Fasting. Fasting, again, is part of our Lenten observance. And as uh, I look around, I see some mostly mature people. And we are, you know, pretty much observed. It's not like it used to be years ago when the fasting laws affected everybody somewhat equally. And I think the church is recognize that you know, one rule or regulation one way does not fit everyone. And they have uh, reduced that to uh, actually cause us to think about our own penance and what is it that we should do. And I think I've just talked about that. It's something that you should really think about during that period of Lent, your relationship with Christ. How are you a true disciple of Christ? Or is there a weakness? Or is there a hole that should be filled? Think about it. Give it some real serious consideration. And fasting is important, but fasting doesn't necessarily have to be from food. We often think about it that way because we're all in need of of food and giving up something is uh, very easy and a very generalized thing. But it causes us to lose sight of the purpose and the meaning when something becomes real easy. So when you are considering giving up something, such as fasting, do it uh, with something that is really meaningful to you and something that you enjoy doing. Um, one thing I would suggest is giving up the iPhone for uh, <laughs> for you know at least six days out of seven, uh, or giving up television, 
Uh, yeah. But those things, yes, as Joe just said, those things are, are kind of easy in a way for some of you, but not for all. For kids these days, wow, that would be the worst punishment you can imagine, I think. Um, but nevertheless, whatever you do, whatever you do, make it be something that will help you come closer to Christ. That should be the main way to measure. Something that will cause you to come closer to Christ. Uh, and I said, it isn't always something negative, giving up something, but rather doing something which is far more important. Okay. Treasures in heaven. Well, somebody asked me one day, not in this class, of course, uh, whether I got paid for teaching. I said, well, no, but my bank account in heaven is really growing. <laughs> yeah. Treasures in heaven. Yeah. I think the that's one of those things that we shouldn't really worry about. It's something that we should leave up to Christ. Because if we become true disciples, then that is a relationship with Christ that grows. And I think if we really do the ultimate, that treasure in heaven will be sitting right next to, to Jesus Christ uh, in heaven. metaphor, really, of anything that we hold here, do, you know, dear to us, it is an earthly thing. Moths, yeah, because earthly possessions can be destroyed or lost, and they're insignificant. What we should really be looking for is something that cannot be destroyed or taken away from us, or lost. And that is part of our relationship with Christ. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. <coughs> Light of the body. <coughs> well, in Jewish beliefs of this time period, it was always considered that the body receives light through our eyes. And this is one of the things uh, that we have to kind of bring that sort of up to date, you might say. <clears throat> but our eyes can be the source of sin in many ways. Uh, look at the stories that you hear about pornography. Uh, you know, to me that is a sickness that has gone beyond just a bad habit. Um, and it can be a real serious sin in a way. It can lead to so many other things. But there are other things too as well. Uh, just looking at an individual improperly or for wrong reasons. Um, there are so many things. You've got to be very careful about your eyes. Uh, reading the wrong things is another thing. 
about God and money. Well, I think uh, most of us know the difference there. Uh, but so many people have lost, well, again, getting back to the harassment stories that we read about. In fact, the front page of the Wall Street Journal has a big article about uh, Wynn, I forgot what his first name is, the fellow that owns uh, many of the, yeah, Steve Wynn, the fellow that owns many of the casinos, not only in uh, Las Vegas, but also in Macau. Um, how he has been so defaced now. You know, part of the fact, you know, of course, that it was not just money that brought him down, but nevertheless, his whole life was uh, centered around making money. And obviously, pleasure comes uh, from uh, that desire as well. Okay. Dependence upon God. Well, you got to be careful with dependence upon God because you can't say, well, I'll just leave it up to God and everything will work out well. Well, God use, God expects you to use uh, some common sense and do your part as well. So you cannot um, leave everything up to God. But when you have tried everything possible and it still doesn't seem to be coming together as you would like it to, then that's when you turn to God uh, as a last resort. Actually, you ask for his grace uh, for doing the right thing in, in the first part, but when all of that seems to have failed or not come up to your expectations, then you've got to be concerned uh, by depending on God for the remainder. Yes, Julie? Well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You, you've got to have God in your life right from the beginning, day in and day out. Uh, that's true. But, you know, so many people uh, just wait and do nothing and then say, Lord, take over. No, you can't do no, that. You can't you do that. Every day put your best foot That's forward. right. That's right. You've got to do your best. God expects you. He has given you some talents. He's giving you a lot of resources, and he expects you to use them. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. All right. Uh, true discipleship. Well, we've talked, I think, enough about that. Uh, I think I've skipped it over here. Judging others. Well, I think we've talked about that as well. We cannot judge others until we know all of the facts. And seldom do we know all the facts. So judging others can be a real source of serious uh, sin. The golden rule. Well, we all know what the golden rule is. Uh, it's in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, I just read it this morning as part of the Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, in the Old Testament, it comes from the book of Tobit. Uh, in the New Testament, it's a part of uh, one of the Gospels. <clears throat> okay. The narrow gate. Uh, this is an interesting metaphor. Um, 
Jesus likens the road to heaven through him as being a narrow path and a very narrow gate. The road to damnation can be wide, open, and very attractive. Uh, unfortunately, it leads uh, to a sad end. And so we must be very careful, but uh, keep our eyes on the narrow road that leads to heaven. Okay. Um, the, there is a metaphor or story that Jesus talks about when he talks uh, about the good shepherd and he as being the shepherd. And he said something about the sheep gate. He likens himself to a sheep gate. Well, for anyone that knows anything about uh, herding sheep, the shepherd will always try to bring them into some kind of enclosure and at this particular time of Christ, as this was written, or in the first century, the shepherd would actually station himself, you know, bedroll and so forth, right in the gate, so that he would know if anyone tried to come in or go out, um, and prevent that if possible. Okay. But Jesus is the way into heaven. And he likens himself to a gate there. <clears throat> False prophets, well, I think we all know that uh, we, are, we are bombarded in many ways with things that hold out uh, glorious results and endings if we do certain things the way that uh, the person is uh, offering. You've got to be extremely careful about that, and I think we all have. Uh, true disciples, we've covered that, I think, and we will continue to cover it throughout this gospel because it's one of the main items of um, Matthew's intent. The two foundations. There again, uh, one is uh, the metaphor of building a house on loose uh, and shaky soil or bare, building your house on firm uh, ground, rocky soil. That is really the way we should live our lives and follow uh, Christ. Because if we follow the whims of all of these other offerings, uh, we will surely lose. Any questions so far on any of this? I think none of it is really new to anybody. Jennifer, yes? No, we cannot. We cannot judge or make uh, comments. And that's what, what really is this was talking about. When we make judgments in our mind, that is something that is pretty hard to avoid. But when we voice those judgments, in the form of gossip or even face to face to the person that we feel that we are talking about, we have to be extremely careful. Because unless we know all of the background, there are so many things that can reflect or perpetrate 
actions that happen much later in life. They come from events or things that we've experienced at another time. And if we don't know all of that background, then we can be judging improperly. And therefore, it's better that we don't judge at all. Well, that is that is a little type of that is a little different kind of judging when we judge ourselves, uh, and even there we've got to be careful. Uh, but you know, there's no way that around because uh, you 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 know you have to kind of live with yourself, and if you're constantly criticizing yourself, you know that's not right. Also, yeah, Susan. Well, that's right, but that's, you know, the, the sin comes really when you voice your judging. Whether it's right or wrong, uh, you got to be extremely careful because, like I said, unless you know all of the background of what has caused somebody to do something. Now, you know, if a person murders another person, obviously we all know that's wrong. And there's, you know, we don't really have to go and say anything because we all would feel the same way. But in other circumstances or in other situations, we don't always know all the facts. And there's times when what's a sin for one person may not be for another, depending on the background. So that's why judging is wrong. Now, it may not be a big sin, but any time you do something that is against the laws of God or the guidelines that he has set up, it's an offense. It's offense against God. And therefore, the side of caution would be not to judge at all. And of course, this is going back in, to a specific event in the life of uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. It said, the angel took Joseph uh, to take Jesus, Mary, and Mary to Egypt because Herod was looking uh, to harm the baby. Then the angel told Joseph later uh, to go back to Israel because the danger no longer existed. Herod was now dead. Why should Joseph fear Archelaus, which was um, Herod's son, if the angel said that the danger no longer existed? So, in other words, so the question is, why um, should Jesus and Mary and Joseph go back to Nazareth rather than Jerusalem? Uh, and that is because... That is the home base for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. That's where they lived before. Then the question goes on. Does the Lord truly uh, condone violence by humans? He gave us the Ten Commandments. Jesus told Peter to put down the sword. Jesus said, don't even get angry. Uh, by contrast, Joshua captures Israel. In 
well, he, he's ending with this, this statement. Is violence really approved by God? No. Violence is not really approved by God. And the person who causes violence has to be, has to pay for whatever the problem is. But we cannot make a, a judgment on that. The idea that bad things really do happen to good people, which is a, I think I'll write a book with that title, uh, really happens because of free will. And if God stepped in to uh, prevent an individual from doing something, then he's taking away that person's free will, even though the act itself uh, might have been prevented. Um, making decisions is something that is a very difficult thing to categorize and, and you know explain because the circumstances are always so different. But again, judgment here is something that we all have to be concerned about um, because we'll be held accountable. The bad, the downside, the negative side to being a good disciple is if you fall, you fall real hard. Yeah. But Jesus is always there willing to pick you up and forgive you, provided that there is true contrition there and that you have an intent not to do whatever the problem was again. No guarantees. Let us go on to the Beatitudes. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor in spirit. Luke uses just the blessed are the poor, and that is sort of a, a limitation. We've got to be careful here, because poor in spirit can mean all kinds of things, over and above financial poverty. So you've got to be very careful. But blessed are those who give of themselves, whether it be spiritually or financially or just time, whatever. But it is without regard to cost. The main item that is not actually in the wording here is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven for the people who give without counting the cost. And I don't mean financial cost always, sometimes, but not always. It can be time, it can be effort, it can be stepping aside uh, and letting somebody else go ahead of you one way or the other. So there's a great deal embedded in those few words. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. All right, Isaiah goes into that in a couple of different places. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 starts out, comfort my people, comfort my people. In other words, God is trying to comfort those who are about to return to Israel during the Babylonian exile because he knows that they will uh, experience a great tragedy when they get there. Let's go on. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. A lot of people shudder with that word meek. They think timid. That is not what the word meek means. It is somebody who is not forceful or willing to force their way through, even though they probably have the abilities. There's somebody who is gentle and ready to step back when they feel that it is better for someone else to go ahead in whatever the project might be. So meekness does not mean timidity or lack of self-esteem or whatever. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here is sort of a support for those people who are trying to um, trying to trying to voice this in a in a polite way, but who are working towards fighting abortion and overthrowing the Roe versus Wade decision of the Supreme Court, uh, because we know that abortion is murder, and these people are being harassed and criticized and in some cases physically abused. So blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they are disciples of Christ. They are willing to bear that. Blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. Uh, If you are in power in any way, try to be merciful and humble enough to help those less fortunate. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. This really speaks to the whole virtue of of purity, spiritual and physical purity, not whether you've taken a shower this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is anyone who is trying to make peace with other persons for their own benefit or between, in other words, they're they're acting as a third person trying to help two other sides mend their ways. Blessed are the peacemakers. And we have a number of politicians that are working for that And there's a number of politicians who are working against that. Yeah. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Well, that can mean several things. It can mean little things where you're trying to do the right thing and somebody will still criticize you for it. You know, regardless of whether Christ himself came down here and 
ran the world, there would be somebody who would complain. <coughs> Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you, falsely, of course, uh, because of me, because of God, because of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. That kind of classifies what these Beatitudes are. They are all rewards that we will experience in heaven in the fullest. But we can also experience many of these right here on earth while we are still alive and working here. But the fullness of these Beatitudes will be experienced in heaven by those who follow them. Remember, all of the prophets who were the best of disciples, even though they weren't called that back in the Old Testament days, uh, were all murdered by their own people because their people did not like what the prophets had to say. Even though in many cases the words came directly from God himself. So you got to be very careful. Being a true Catholic and trying to be a disciple is not easy. No one ever claimed it to be easy. It can be beautiful. It can be very good in many ways. Of course, it has the ultimate in rewards, but it's not easy. But nothing that is truly worthwhile comes easy, as we've all known. And that is what discipleship is all about. Any questions? Do you have a better understanding now of what the Sermon on the Mount was all about? I hope so. Because the rest of Matthew's Gospel builds on what you've learned today and in the past. And that's true with everything that you learn in any Bible study program. You can't just say, well, that we've covered that book and now I can set it aside and forget it. Uh-uh. You've got to take what you've learned and build on it and bring it forward and constantly review it. It's not something that you can just put aside because the Gospels, the Bible itself, is a living organism that should be living within you and become very part of of your everyday life. Excuse me. Next week, we will go on to the healing ministry of Christ. Again, like in the Sermon on the Mount, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew has brought a number of the healings of Christ together. It's not that they all happen one after the other, just as they are presented here. 
but each one has a message. And that is what we want to understand. How does that message affect us today? And how can it make us a better disciple? So let us look at it in that light. And if there are no other questions. Yes, Howard? Yeah. Well, that that's the same meaning as what I've said in slightly different words. Yeah, do not let us be led into temptation. But we will. We're in temptation every day. Well, that's true. That's true, and and perhaps your translation would would be better. But yeah, Vincent. Wait, wait, please, please, so we can hear. What's that? Yeah, well, that whole article is on the Pope's comments. Yes. All right. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. We talked about a lot of things today in a few words. Help us then to think about them a little deeper. Give us the grace and the strength to see where we stand as individuals before you and what our strengths and weaknesses are. And during the time of Lent that begins next week, help us then to focus not only on the weaknesses, but on the good side as well. Because with you, we have accomplished some good things. But there are more to be accomplished. Help us then to see what those things are. So that we might spend the Easter on improving our relationship with you. So we ask your blessing and your graces on us. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.